The opinions expressed in the Palace of Glittering Delights are mine and mine alone. No one would be stupid enough to hold them. The things discussed in the Palace of Glittering Delights may lead to spoilers if you have not seen the topic of today's episode. There may also be occasional ranting and swearing. Don't say I didn't warn you. Magnum P.I. was the phenomenally successful Universal television detective series running from 1980 to 1988, and along the way, making a huge star out of its lead actor Tom Selleck, who played Thomas Magnum, and garnering 17 Emmy nominations and two wins, one for Selleck for Best Actor in 1984, and one for John Hillerman, who played Jonathan Quayle Higgins for Best Supporting Actor in 1987. Despite this, its gestation period would not be easy. Originally, Magnum was a spec script from TV impresario Glenn A. Larson, purveyor of hugely enjoyable, if incredibly formulaic, pabulum. Larson offered the script to Donald P. Belisario, whose development deal with Universal had yet to bear fruit for him to direct. Seeing 20 days in Hawaii in his future, Belisario said yes. And then he read it. Attached to the project was Tom Selleck, the up-and-coming star of, well, nothing of note. Selleck had had five pilots over the last few years, none of which had gone to series. His biggest role so far was as Lance White in a couple of Rockford-file episodes and a few TV commercials. He'd worked steadily, if unspectacularly, but at 35 was seeking his elusive big break. That it would happen twice in one year was magnificent bad luck. Selleck had signed on to this pilot, but there was a problem. He didn't like it. It was cookie-cutter, formulaic, and not just a little bit staid. The magnum on the page was a clichéd secret agent type. Handsome, rich, a smart-ass, and more importantly to Selleck, dull. At the same time, Selleck had been meeting with Steven Spielberg and George Lucas for this thing they were doing, and he'd much rather be doing that. Still, a contract was a contract and a job was a job, so Selleck arranged a dinner with Belisario to iron out the problems. Belisario was reticent. Having read Larson's script, he wasn't sure he wanted to do it either. Still, he dutifully met with Selleck, only to learn, to his great joy, Selleck hated the same things he did. Selleck didn't want to play a perfect person. He'd done that on Rockford, and he'd rather have been playing Jim Rockford. He wanted Magnum to struggle a bit, to be a bit of a klutz, to be down on his luck, to have a sense of humour, but, you know, have some resemblance to a real-life human being. Belisario's happiness became ecstasy. Remember that development deal he had with Universal? Well, Belisario had written a script called J.J. Flynn, about a down-at-heel P.I. working out of California. He and his two buddies, Rick, the owner of a Humphrey Bogart-inspired bar called Rick's Americana, and T.C., a chopper pilot who flew out of the oil rigs. All three would be Vietnam vets and would have retired to the sun to enjoy life for a while. It was Selleck's turn to be delighted. This sounded so much better than Larson's script. 
Belisario approached Larson and told him Selleck wanted Belisario to rewrite the pilot, incorporating elements from both scripts. Belisario told Larson he'd do it, and they'd split the creator credit. A handshake deal later, and Larson received one of the most lucrative deals of his career. A co-creator credit on a hugely successful show that he barely had anything to do with and never worked on. Only in Hollywood. The deal done, Belisario rewrote J.J. Flynn to be now set in Hawaii, with the characters updated for that setting. The problem was, Belisario had never been to Hawaii. He wrote the script from an A to Z. He also refined the characters. Magnum was now a former Navy SEAL, and would be living in the exclusive estate of Arthur Robin Masters, working as Masters' security officer. Magnum would command no fee for this, but would be allowed to live in the estate's guesthouse and be allowed to use Master's Ferrari for free. This would bring Magnum into conflict with the estate's long-time living caretaker, former British Army Sergeant Major Jonathan Higgins. The relationship between Higgins and Magnum is one of the finest on TV. Both men served, both men are fiercely loyal to their respective countries, but both men are perhaps loyal to a version of the country that never actually existed. Certainly both men have a distrust of their governments, even as they strove to do the right thing. Both men are also a lot more alike than they would ever admit. Their antagonistic relationship ebbs and flows through the years, but they both end up being the definition of opposites attract, developing a bond over the eight years that was perhaps unimaginable after viewing the pilot. TC, or Theodore Calvin, was played by Roger E. Mosley, and was altered to run a tourist service, Island Hoppers, taking visitors to Hawaii on helicopter tours of the island. TC was originally to be actor Gerald McCrane, but somebody pointed out to Belisario that, you know, maybe a little bit of diversity in the cast wouldn't be a bad thing in 1980, and so Belisario looked for somebody else to occupy the role. Selleck suggested Mosley, who he'd previously worked with on a movie, and Mosley came in, determined to have TC book stereotypes. Despite being a bit of a pain in the ass, this worked out well. In the pilot, TC is a horn dog with the libido of a 14-year-old. He can't walk past a woman without checking her out and commenting on her boobs. By episode 3, this character trait would be dropped. Mosley asked for TC to be fairly well-off and successful, booking the stereotyped broke black man trope. He also pushed for TC to be teetotal. After TC is seen drinking in the pilot and one subsequent episode, TC would never be seen imbibing alcohol again. Every time he's at the club with Higgins or Rick, he's drinking coffee or water. Magnum would be forever coming to TC to borrow money or mooch off a favour. I don't know, Thomas. I don't think this is going to work. Oh, come on, TC. You're a good mechanic. <laughs> on helicopters, I'm king. Jeeps, I'm unbeatable, but... Man, there's so much unnecessary junk up under these things. Unnecessary junk? TC, a spark plug is a spark plug. You'll do a great job. Okay. I guess I'll need a ball-peen hammer. Throw it here. Okay, fire up. Mm -hmm. 
<laughs> That's great, you did it. <laughs> Never doubted it for a minute. Hey, you're a genius. <laughs> well, that'll be 50 bucks. 50 bucks? What for? Well, it's something known as parts, man. 50 bucks for spark plugs? Come on. That's right. Look, I got to run. I'll see you this afternoon. Hey, man, it's Friday, Thomas. I need the 50 bucks to buy a fuel pump for my chopper. Well, all I got is a 20. All right, man, that'll do for right now. TC, you mean you'd let me drive out of here broke? Well, if that's the way you always drive in, the money, Thomas. OK, I tell you what I'll do. I'll loan you 10 till this evening. You owe me 10, you owe me 50. That's right, which I don't have. So I'll loan you 10 to keep you afloat. You can pay me back when I pay you the 50. Whoa, what's with this Abbott and Costello routine? You owe me 50, you loan me 10. Forget it. Oh, OK, thanks. I owe you one. You owe me one. You owe me 50. The final regular cast member was Orville Rick Wright, played by Larry Minetti. Rick was originally conceived to be a Bogart-like club owner, his way of dealing with Nome, but by episode two this was dropped in favour of Rick running the King Kamehameha Club. The network didn't want Minetti doing a bad bogey impression every week, and Belisario capitulated to this demand after refusing to remove the character's shirred Vietnam veteran background from the pilot. This actually improved the show. Robin Masters was established to be on the board of the King Kamehameha Club as an investor, and therefore Higgins represents his interests there. This gave Rick and Higgins an excuse to interact, independent of Magnum, as well as bring them into conflict over Rick's constant helping of Magnum with his cases. Thanks, Moana. Have a beer, Moana? Never gonna stay in shape drinking beer, Thomas. Look who's talking. The only exercise you get is walking between the bar and the dining room. You don't have to exercise to stay in shape. All you have to do is get a lot of rest and drink a lot of fruit juice. It sounds like a cure for the flu. Mm. I'm serious. I've been reading Fitness Through Fruit Juices, written by Dr. Harlan Levy. He says that if you drink the proper blend of fruit juices six times a day, you don't have to diet or exercise or anything. It's so funny. You think I'm kidding? Listen, take this for example. This is Dr. Levy's blend of pineapple, orange, papaya, loquat, kumquat, boysenberry, blueberry, cherry. One glass of this will make you healthier than if you were to run seven miles in the morning. That one glass? That one glass. <coughs> Forgot to mention the vodka. I added that for flavoring. <laughs> The interrelationships between the characters are fascinating. Magnum's relationship with Rick and his relationship with TC are slightly different. Rick is always keen to help Magnum, be it with information or use of the club. Rick has a lot of shady connections. His childhood was rough and he ended up in Vietnam to avoid jail. As such, he and Magnum are more like traditional friends and are willing to drop everything for each other should the need arise. Rick was a sniper and medic in Nam, and Magnum regularly steps into Rick's arguments, with Magnum once saying that this was to stop Rick from killing anyone. This idea that Rick was on a her trigger was interesting, but rarely followed up on, and is slightly belied by Minetti's affable performance. Rick has a similar friendship with TC. Magnum's relationship with TC is more fractious, and they act like big brother, little brother, regularly winding each other up, getting on each other's nerves, and bickering. We learn this is a holdover from Nam, where their first meeting had them come to blows. 
Magnum's often quite mean to TC, stiffing him for gas money, using him for favours, jipping him out of paying customers, and generally abusing their friendship. TC regularly calls him out on this, but there's a bond between the two men that transcends the animosity. To me, these interrelationships are what the show is about. Friendship, loyalty, and camaraderie. These four men of completely disparate backgrounds become friends, and no matter the arguments, the falling outs, the problems, they will always come back together if any one of them is in trouble, something seen and shown many, many times over the next eight years and 162 episodes. Now, I know what you're thinking, and you're right. Andrew, you're thinking, what happened to that project Selick was in talks with Spielberg and Lucas about? Well, Selick's commitment to Magnum PI meant he had to turn it down, but I'm pretty sure nothing ever came of it. The pilot to Magnum PI, entitled Don't Eat the Snow in Hawaii, aired in November of 1980, and was written by Bellasurio, and Larson, I guess, and directed by Roger Young. Why it wasn't directed by Bellasario himself, given that that's what he was contracted to do in the first place, is a mystery lost to time. But the pilot would later be heard around the world, propelling Selick to worldwide superstardom. Now, you'll hear many a TV producer and fan talk of how a show can sometimes take a few episodes, seasons or years to find its feet. None of that nonsense applies to Magnum P.I., the pilot is almost a note-perfect episode, hitting the ground running and introducing characters we'll get to know very well over the coming years. The story sees Magnum meet up with a Navy buddy, Dan Cook, for a week's shore leave. But before Magnum can meet him, Dan is found dead with a bag of exploded cocaine in his stomach. It's an open and shut case for the Navy. Dan was smuggling drugs, a packet exploded in his belly, he died. The end. However, Magnum doesn't believe that this can possibly be true, and showing an almost supernatural sixth sense about this, something that will be revisited many times over the run of the show and actually start being referred to by Magnum as his little voice, Magnum takes it upon himself to begin an investigation. Almost everything about the pilot works. The opening scene where Magnum is breaking into the estate to prove to Higgins security isn't all it could be is a classic, both tense and funny. It concludes with Magnum successfully stealing the Ferrari and executing a perfect skid out of the estate, a move utilised in the opening credits for the next eight years. Magnum's relationships all feel real, not like a bunch of actors who've just met each other. The location is exploited beautifully, showcasing an almost old-fashioned version of Hawaii that gives the show a feel unlike other productions from the Universal TV factory of the time. We're introduced to Magnum's voiceover, a great hard-boiled noir device that works perfectly in allowing us access to Magnum's thoughts and theories over the years. It will provide many great moments in future episodes, and add a few iconic elements to the show, from my often-stolen I Know What You're Thinking, to the aforementioned little voice, to Magnum's tips on how to become a world-class private investigator. The only bum note is Ian Freeborn Smith's music, which, whilst fine in isolation, sounds more like an episode of Starsky and Hutch than Magnum. This jazzy, freeform number will remain as the opening theme until episode 11, when we will be introduced to the more memorable and iconic theme by Mike Post and Pete Carpenter. Although Post would start scoring the show with episode 8. Here is the Freeborn Smith version. 
There you go. You can have that as a trivia answer. If somebody plays that in a pub quiz and goes, what was this the theme to? You will now know that that was the theme to Magnum PI. Well, at least for 10 or 11 episodes anyway. Belisario felt the key to Magnum was a line in the original pilot. Magnum woke up one morning aged 33 and realised he'd never been 23. This was how he approached the character, and it's evident in the first proper episode, China Doll, written and directed by Belisario. This one sees Magnum hired to protect an ancient vase, but he runs into more trouble than even he can handle when an agent of the Tong Gang also wants it. China Doll is the last time TC will be a hound dog and a drinker, but this episode has one of the funniest moments of the entire series. Magnum was frequently known to break the fourth wall within the show, most famously in the Ferrari skid out of the estate shot used in the opening titles. This episode, though, features the funniest. Magnum is about to meet his client's cousin, Ho. As he walks into the shop, Magnum says, Hi, Ho, and then looks directly into camera as if to say, I know, I know, I'm sorry, that was a terrible joke. It's hysterical and prefigures Jim Halpert by 25 years. Thank Heaven for Little Girls, and Big Ones Too, was written by Babs Gray Hosky and directed by Bruce Seth Green, and was the first Christmas episode of the show, the second being the fourth season gem, Operation Silent Night. Magnum is hired by four little girls on a school trip, whose teacher has took off on a whirlwind of fur, but all is not as it seems. I'm conscious that this episode will be me just saying another great episode over and over, but mostly they are. The overly convoluted nature of the plot adds to the fun of this episode. No Need to Know was written by A-Team co-creator Frank Lupo and directed by Lawrence Doheny and features Magnum at odds with a brigadier in the British Army he's trying to protect over the trail of some IRA agents. Skipped over by ITV4 on the rerun I'm currently watching, apparently the troubles are still controversial, this is still a pretty good episode. Magnum is asked by the CIA to keep an eye on a British brigadier, currently staying at Robin's estate, and notify them if there are any incidents, like, oh, I don't know, attempts on his life? It turns out the brigadier has been offered the estate by Robin as a bolt hole to hide out in until a trial for two IRA terrorists brought to book by the brigadier comes to court. It skillfully avoids political polemic, at least attempts to offer both sides of the argument, and shows a Magnum fed up with war and killing, who'd just like people to talk it out more, rather than bombing each other. It doesn't specifically state Magnum's own problems and thoughts about Vietnam, but the subtext is heavy. It's still Magnum, though, and not only is there a twist, albeit a slightly more obvious one than usual, it's also loaded with great character moments and humour. Skin Deep was written by Donald P. Bellasario and directed by Lawrence Doheny, and is a lurid, hard-boiled tale of the death of an actress in suspicious circumstances. Her producer, a young Ian McShane, hires Magnum to prove her death was no suicide. Whilst the twists and turns of this plot may be more predictable than other Magnum episodes, the flashbacks to Nam are what make this an above-average show. Magnum, Rick and TC were all affected by their experiences in the war, as was Higgins, but to a different extent. And this was something the series would refer to on numerous occasions, but rarely as minimally or as realistically as this. That Magnum and TC still both have PTSD flashbacks, but deny it, says a lot about both the times and how much they just wanted to put it all aside and move on with their lives. Never again, never, 
again, was written by Babs Gorehoski from a story by Jim Carlson and Terence MacDonald and directed by Robert Lozier. This is a great episode and a contender for one of the best of the first season. Magnum agrees to help an elderly Jewish couple being stalked by Nazis, but all is not as it seems. The ending to this one seems quite controversial, with some viewers recalling a gunshot in original Erring's, but said shot is not present on the DVDs or in this ITV4 screening. Watching it closely, I think the ending was definitely tinkered with in post-production, possibly for standards and practices reasons, as it's very disjointed and clunky. I think the antagonist was supposed to commit suicide rather than have Magnum shoot them, but the clumsy cutting makes it impossible to decide for certain. Either way, the epilogue to this episode is the first thawing in the relationship between Higgins and Magnum, with Higgins telling Magnum about his experiences in World War II, and how a lot of Nazis had excuses and reasons for what they did, but of course, there can be no real excuse. Higgins' war experience, like Magnum's, would be mined for many stories in the future. The Ugliest Dog in Hawaii was written by Alan Cole, Chris Bunch and Frank Lupo and directed by Lawrence Doheny and despite this pedigree is one of the worst episodes of the season. Magnum is hired to protect a dog from mobsters. The mobsters are played far too broad to be funny and too inept to be a serious threat and whilst there is some fun to be had it's all a bit much. The end credits are the best thing about it featuring outtakes and bloopers of Selick and Hilleman corpsing hysterically. Missing in Action was written by Craig Book and Ken Pettis, from a story by Craig Book and directed by Robert Lozier. Magnum is hired by the King Kamehameha Club's new singer to find her fiancé, MIA in Vietnam, but now believed to be on the islands. This episode is again pretty good, but hampered by its casting. Knight Rider's Rebecca Holden looks burly out of her teens here, and in no way old enough to have been in college at a time when her sweetheart enlisted. Holden was 20 when this was filmed, and whilst actors can often get away with playing vastly different ages, Holden's character should have been played by someone at least 10 years older, or at least didn't look like she was still in primary school when Nam finished. Lest We Forget is another script by Donald P. Bellasario and directed by Lawrence Doheny, and is another candidate for Best of the Season. Magnum is hired by Judge Robert Kane to locate his wife, missing for over 40 years. An intriguing premise filled with neat twists and turns, this episode also makes some great casting choices. In the present day, Judge Kane and his wife are played by Jose Ferrer and June Lockhart, whilst in flashback, their children, Miguel Ferrer and Anne Lockhart, take over the same roles. It's a great idea, removing the need for actors who look nothing like their older selves, as both Lockhart and Ferrer had children who looked astonishingly like their parents. Following a brush with ESP and missing in action, Magnum delves further into the supernatural with The Curse of the King Kamehameha Club, written by Babs Grey-Hoske and directed by Vinrik Kolb. Over the years, Magnum would do a lot of supernaturally tinged stories, with Magnum even being helped out on cases by a ghost. This one is still mostly in the land of the plausible. A curse is placed upon the King Kamehameha Club, which is laughed off, but when people start dying and Rick falls ill, it's up to Magnum to find out what's really occurring. Stories that focused on Magnum's fitness are always fun, because despite how Selick looked, Magnum isn't an overly muscled meathead. He likes a lot of sports and exercise, but he isn't depicted as obsessed, and therefore he becomes a lot more relatable. In the King Kamehameha Club surf ski race, Magnum comes 58th out of 279 entrants, which I think is perfectly respectable. 
It is not the only episode of the season that will be built around Magnum's exercise habits. Thicker Than Blood is another Donald P. Belisario Lawrence Doheny show, and the first TC-centric episode of the series. TC is arrested for bringing a marine deserter illegally to the islands, and refuses to explain himself despite the transgression costing him everything. Magnum and Rick must prove their friend's innocence, which is difficult because he isn't innocent. Reinforcing Magnum's core themes of loyalty and friendship, Magnum and Rick pull every trick out of the book to help TC, even when TC doesn't want the help. But again, the relationships between the characters make the story work. Magnum doesn't tell Higgins why he needs a specific favour, and Higgins uses it to get Magnum to agree to leave the estate. Later, when Higgins finds out Magnum's desperation was to help TC, Higgins backs down, so Magnum can stay without ever saying why, to Magnum, anyway. We know why. Higgins has grown to really like TC. Another of the great character beats in this show was the prissy little Brit and the touchy-muscled black dude would end up bonding over ballet and the opera. Magnum always managed to surprise. Hey guys, wait till you see what I found on the bottom of my closet. <laughs> oh, hi Higgins. That is absolutely ridiculous. But that's the whole point, Higgins. Uh. I uh, heard about TC. What he did and why. Is uh, his friend going to be all right? Oh, I don't know, Higgins. It kind of depends on Joey. I sure know he's better off with TC than he was with those smugglers. Yes, quite. That's uh, why you needed the name of that ship, isn't it? Uh, to help TC. Yeah, what difference does it make? None, just curious. Well, look, Higgins, I gotta finish packing here. What about the inventory? Inventory? Well, surely you don't expect to leave until I've taken an inventory of all the furnishings, paintings, linens. Oh, come on, Higgins, don't be ridiculous. I'm not going to steal any towels. This is Robin Master's guest house, and the head of security on this estate, it's my responsibility. I can't just let you walk out without taking an inventory. So take it. No, I can't today. I have guests to look after. Perhaps tomorrow. Oh, no, Higgins, you're not going to do that. You are not going to hold this inventory over me like the sword of Damocles. Now, if you don't do it today, that's it. The deal's off. I'm staying. Well, then, I'm afraid you'll just have to stay. Oh, I'll be damned. All Roads Lead to Floyd was written by Rogers Turrentine and Babs Grey-Hoske and directed by Ron Satloff. It's a standard episode, but still entertaining. Magnum is hired by a young woman to locate her conman father, last seen in Oahu. It's a fun episode, with lots of character beats and humour. In the B-plot, Magnum is rear-ended in the Ferrari by an old lady with no insurance, leading to conflict with Higgins and TC, the latter of whom suffered whiplash. Magnum is forced to drive around in a beaten-up old Honda, and the sight of Selleck getting in and out of such a tiny car is a sight gag the Simpsons would also mine over ten years later. Also notable for being the first time Magnum says, I know what you're thinking, and you're right. 
Adelaide is another standard adventure written by Robert Hamilton and directed by Lawrence Doheny. For the second time this season, Magnum is hired to look after an animal, in this case a thoroughbred horse, owned by Adelaide Malone, played by Christina Belford. Belford made a career out of playing pretty young women who don't know that they are pretty, hiding behind large 80s glasses and pulled back her. But Magnum proves his depth, a little, by being attracted to her intelligence and fortitude. It's another slight adventure, aided by some great character moments, particularly Higgins' snide put-downs of Magnum's abilities and the sight of Rick and TC dressed in their refinery for a trip to the races. It's most notable, though, for being the first time Magnum refers to his little voice. Don't Say Goodbye was written by T.J. Miles and Babs Grey-Hosky and directed by Vinnick Colby. Magnum is hired by an old friend and former client who is being blackmailed. Ted Danson guest stars, and it doesn't take a world-class private investigator to work out he's the real bad guy, but there's a lot of fun to be had getting there. Notable for the B-plot whereby Higgins spends the episode chewing Magnum out about paying his phone bill after his line is cut off, only to have to eat crow when it's revealed that the dogs have chewed through Magnum's line. The Black Orchid was written by Robert Hamilton and directed by Ray Austin. Judith Chapman, who was in everything in the 1970s and 80s, stars as a spoilt rich girl whose sister hires Magnum to entertain her with P.I. role-playing games. Magnum thinks this is dumb, but, as usual, needs the money. So you can imagine his surprise when someone tries to kill her for real. This felt like the first really silly episode, one where the script didn't really hold up, nor was the mystery that interesting. Magnum just kind of falls into the case rather than being hired or it being a natural byproduct of his involvement, and as such, this episode ends up being rather dull and uninvolving. The action is also subpar, with the fight scenes being particularly slow and stagey. A stunningly beautiful Erin Gray stars in the next episode as J. Digger Doyle, written by Donald P. Belisario and directed by Vinrick Colby. Gray is a security expert hired by Robin Masters to ensure the estate is safe for his arrival with some top-secret tapes. It's the first episode of the series not to have an actual case, rather Magnum's earning his keep as Robin's security specialist. The story is a bit silly. Why would a novelist be interested with top-secret documents? But overall, it's a good one. There are some dated elements by today's standards. It's a cliché to have Digger be every bit as good, if not better than Magnum, but having to sacrifice her emotions to be taken seriously. But it wasn't made today, it was made 42 years ago. Overall, the series has a very high hit rate in this regard, with very few cringe-worthy moments. So let's acknowledge that, eh, instead of focusing on the negative. It's notable in some scenes, though, that Selleck is deliberately holding back, particularly the surfboard scenes. I've done some paddling, and Selleck's technique of using his core and back as well as his arms to paddle is better than Grey, who just seems to be using her arms exclusively, something that'll just tire her out. The episode also has some great character moments, such as Magnum and Digger's rescue of Higgins, but Magnum losing TC a $7,000 payday for a week's work is very underhanded. There were plans to bring Digger back and maybe spin her off into her own show, but this never came to pass. This would have been a pretty good season finale, but the actual finale was Beauty Knows No Pain, written by Robert Hamilton and directed by Ray Austin. 
Mrs. Crabapple herself, Marcia Wallace, guest stars as Barbara Terranova, who hires Magnum to find her fiancé. But she can only afford Magnum for one day. Coincidentally, the day Magnum is being press-ganged into entering the Iron Man triathlon by TC. The second episode of the season to be built around Magnum's athleticism. This is a comedic ending, with some classic moments of Magnum's patience rapidly coming to an end, some great camaraderie between the four leads, and some laugh-out-loud sight gags. The case doesn't amount to much, but Magnum manages to resolve it even if it means sacrificing the race. It's a rare episode whereby Magnum is battered from pillar to post, unable to really focus and loses control of the situation. But once he's able to just stew for a while and think things through, a solution presents itself. Selica quits himself admirably in the Iron Man scenes, looking like someone who could be in good enough shape to compete. We've all seen leading men in these shows who are held up to be action men, but the minute any action takes place... Looking at you, David Boreanaz, the far more muscular stuntman takes over. This is a lightweight but nevertheless entertaining finale to the season. The first season of Magnum P.I. held up remarkably well. It's always been one of my favourite shows, and people sometimes look askance when I try to convince them that it's actually a lot better than they remember it. People tend to lump it in with the 80s generally, believing it to be cheesy entertainment, similar to the A-Team or TJ Hooker, and built merely around how good Tom Selleck looked in a pair of short shorts. But it isn't. Not really. It's much more than that. Whilst the show can have some elements of cheese and 80s standby moments, such as bloodless action sequences and car chases, it also features characters of surprising depth. The interrelationships are mined for comedy, pathos, drama and conflict. Episodes veer wily from comedy to drama, serious crime noir to more frivolous cases on a dime. Some episodes are just character pieces with no cases or mystery. Others won the Edgar Award for their intricate plotting. It could just as easily do realistic heart-rending drama or outright fantasy. The characters are fully fleshed out, from TC's love of high art like ballet to the theatre to Rick's culinary talents. We learned everything there was to know about Thomas Magnum, from his favourite writer to his favourite film to his family. Higgins could have been a two-dimensional cipher, a cliché, but instead he becomes a character we learn to care about and love. Character development was adhered to, if not always consistent. It was five seasons, for example, before we discovered TC had an ex-wife and two kids. But once we did learn this, TC was a constant presence in his kid's life and another refusal to follow stereotypes regarding black characters. Magnum grows up over the eight years the show erred. He changed. Attention was paid to recurring roles. If Magnum needed help, it was DA Carol Baldwin who helped him. Whenever he was balled out by the military, it was Colonel Buck Green who did the balling. If he was at the hospital, he saw Doc Eibold. If he was at the police HQ, he talked to Lieutenant Tanaka. And this is just scratching the surface of the many and varied supporting roles throughout the run, from Ice Pick to Luther Gillis, Agatha Chumley to Mac, and many, many more. If you were to pick any number of phenomenal, successful shows from the 80s, true phenomenons, not just shows that were successful, you'd probably plump for The Cosby Show, The A-Team, Miami Vice, Moonlighting and Magnum P.I. But of those shows, only one of them is still erring around the world to this day. And it's not Miami Vice, and it certainly isn't Cosby. One of the best things about Magnum P.I. was the humour. 
from snide but hysterical one-liners, normally at Magnum's expense and always beautifully played by Selick, to laugh-out-loud silliness, the show had it all. Unlike other programmes of the era, Magnum was mostly unpredictable. A serious show one week would be followed by a comedy the next. A heavy-themed show followed up by a plot about a missing parrot. The show had no formula, which meant the writers could do anything. And they did. I know what you're thinking, and you're right. Magnum P.I.? Isn't that that cheesy 80s show about the guy with the moustache and the short shorts? Well, yes, it is. But it's also as great now as it was then. And when I grow up, I still want to be a Hawaiian-based private investigator. Cue eyebrow wiggle. Headquarters for the greatest podcast selection of classic horror films. The House of Frankenstein. Do modern houses scare you? <laughs> They're mortar, stone, and wood. Visit fireandwaterpodcast.com for your favorite monsters and stars. Lon Chaney Jr. The creature that's been alive for over 3,000 years is in this town, and it's brought death with it. George Zuko. If you were to kill me, you're leaving at large a monster that only I can control. Peter Cushing. Is that what you want, Count Dracula? A last blaze of utter horror and violence. Christopher Lee. Revenge has spread over centuries and has just begun. Boris Karloff. Colin Clive. <laughs> it's alive. It's alive. It's alive. And Don Knotts. So what is brave? How should I know? I'm chicken. Plus, only at Supermates Podcast, your favorite comic superheroes versus fiendish monsters. Wonder Woman, Superman, we meet again. You must pay for burying me. Check your local podcast listings for a location near you. All treats, no tricks. And you're chicken if you miss the house of Frankenstein. Okay, shall we browse the email sack, delve deep of its treasures? Matt Prather has emailed in. It has been a while. It has indeed, Matt. Hello, Andrew. Hello, Matt. I haven't had the opportunity to email for a few episodes. Guess sometimes life just gets away from me. Forgive me for the rapid-fire nature of my missive, but I have some ground to cover. Love me some Spider-Man, and you are appreciative of stirring up some nostalgia. It's always nice, isn't it? Well, let's not rely on it, though. Nostalgia, you know. Occasionally, in its place, it's good. The pretty reckless walk through James Bond was fun. If you have any other overanalyzing of songs, you don't have to be shy. We would love to hear from them. 
I don't know if people would actually. No one fed back about that one at all. The Hulk TV series was a big deal for me when it came out, and like the Wonder Woman series, it didn't have the effect of rendering me monosyllabic Neanderthal when the titular hero was on screen. Good use of the word titular when describing Wonder Woman. So I actually recalled this episode in depth with the nudge to my memory. Thanks to that. Max Headroom has an announcement coming out of Comic-Con. Didn't see that coming. I guess it's ripe for a reboot. Thanks, as always, Matt. You're very welcome, Matt. Yes, it was announced that Max Headroom is being resurrected with Matt Frewer coming back in the title role. I don't know what I think about this. I mean, on the one hand, the, the world in which we currently live is ripe for satire. On the other... There weren't a lot of dystopian science fiction television shows out there when Max Hedrum was on the air. Certainly not satirical ones like Max was. Now there's quite a few. So whether or not it'll find its place in the modern day TV landscape, I don't know. I guess we'll just have to wait and see, won't we? And, uh, hopefully it'll be good. Hopefully it'll be enjoyable. And that's it for this time. Who can say what next time will be? That's written in the stars. But you can email heykidscomics at virginmedia.com should you so desire to let me know what you think. It's all going to be fine. Take care. Goodbye. <laughs>